to Luke 23. Start in verse 44 and go through uh, 2412. I'll read that. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, were turned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had, been, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for, looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So another, another Easter message, as you said, and an, an amazing story, right? What do you even say about this? There's about 15 sermons packed in this small little text, and even last week, I just try, or two weeks ago, I just tried to pull out what I could of what do you what is it you focus on and that's why I said from the last sermon is most of this sermon is on the cutting room floor right that's most of what you especially when you preach on such a text as the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ you you end up cutting out 95% of it and you leave the 5% that'll fit into 30 minutes and that's kind of the same thing with that the resurrection uh, you you Take what you can. You take the most prevalent things you can, and just and just uh, accept that a lot of it will not fit. And there's so many things you can preach on. So I tried to bring to the surface and uh, just a few things that we gather from this. One is that all of these images are converging on this one moment. All these images that have been developed throughout Luke are now converging on this final moment. And like any good storyteller, Luke isn't going to point that out or else he wouldn't be a good storyteller because good storytellers let you come to that conclusion and understand what's going on without having to tell you exactly that. Because if every time Luke brought an image that he's been developing throughout his letter or throughout his book, 
if you just put in parentheses, by the way, this is what this means, he'd be a horrible storyteller. Because no one does that unless you really think very low of your audience and their ability to comprehend what is being written. Of course, throughout even the Jerusalem narrative alone, what we see in the cross is one, you know, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's one image Jesus gave for his own death and resurrection. That the builders, the priests in, in Jerusalem and Israel by extension, has rejected the, the stone and therefore the stone has become the cornerstone, the stone that their future is built upon. Or the cup of wrath has now been drunk by Jesus, the very thing he was dreading in Gethsemane as he was being squeezed like a grape. He's being squeezed and blood is pouring out of him through his sweat. He is drinking this cup of wrath that he asked, Father, is there any way this can pass from me? Of course, the the most prevalent image Jesus develops throughout Luke, the Son of Man is defeating the the final beast from Daniel 7. It's interesting that of all the things the angels that meet them at the tomb could have said, this is the one they point out in Luke. Of all the things they could have said, did you not recognize what Jesus meant when he said the stone would be rejected by the builders? They don't say that. They say, did he not say he was the Son of Man? Right. That's what they point out. They, they, they say, did you not read Daniel 7? Did you, did you not recognize this for years, what Jesus was saying about Daniel 7? That's the one the angels go to. And of course, Jesus enthroned as king coming together in this moment as well. It is true what is written above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And it's so cool that you pointed out it's in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek, all the known spoken languages of the Roman world at that time, which is a subtle way for the writer to say he is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of everybody. And if you're a good storyteller, you do it in that little nuanced way, as if to say the Latins will need this, the Greeks will need to hear this, and those who speak Aramaic will need to hear this message too. And of course, the Passover lamb is slaughtered for us on Passover. <laughs> make sure, he makes sure that you know exactly the hour Jesus died at as the temple sacrifice is being offered at the ninth hour. That is when Jesus breathes his last. And, and one I haven't been able to develop more fully throughout Luke, but is very strong is if you remember that middle section, that giant middle section of Luke, back in Caesarea Philippi, where it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, you get this long, what's called the travelogue. It's just Jesus walking towards Jerusalem and all these stories happening on the way. And he goes through the Samaritan region and he encounters the Pharisees, goes through Jericho all while on his way traveling to uh, to Jerusalem. That's a very Luke-specific idea, this travel log. And I think what it's supposed to mimic, and this isn't my idea, is Moses journeying to the promised land with the people of Israel. And as you may know, before Israel could inherit the blessing God had for them, Moses had to die. They had to wait for Moses to die before they could go in and receive the blessing. And so Jesus must die first before the blessing comes to his people. There's about six more images that are converging on this that I just didn't have uh, space and maybe mental capacity to develop, but it's beautiful how in one, one moment of the crucifixion and resurrection, all of these converge and come together. And sometimes the church has been guilty of emphasizing one way over the others or belittling another and instead of kind of holding them in tandem and seeing what they all mean. I think by far the most prevalent, though, the one I want to draw out that I haven't mentioned, uh, the, by, by far the most prevalent is actually oddly the most subtle that goes unnoticed for some reason now. Uh, The most prevalent, I would say, is the image of decreation and new creation. Maybe you notice those images coming through, but they're actually quite uh, obvious once you see them. For example, when Jesus is dying, it says uh, uh, the earth, sorry, (laughs) that's Genesis, gave it away. But as Jesus is dying, the darkness came upon the land 
uh, until the ninth hour while the sun's light had failed in 2344. Why would Luke include a detail about the sun going out and darkness coming over the whole land unless he wanted you to think back to Genesis 1 where it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. He's trying to get you to see without explicitly saying it that creation is being undone. Even the very foundation of Genesis 1-1 itself is being undone. That light has been brought into existence. Now that has been decreated. And I'm not sure if decreated is a word. I tried to look it up and some things say yes, some things say no, but it will suffice. I'll use it. But he's showing that when Jesus dies, it's the end of Act 1. It's decreation happening. Even light itself is going out. The light of the world has died. The sun goes out and darkness comes over the face of the land. Or uh, the spirit, when God creates Adam, he breathes into him breath and spirit. It says, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then Jesus, the second Adam, uh, the same thing. It says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last from receiving breath, the first Adam, to giving up his last breath, the second Adam. And of course, both die very obviously at the hands of a tree, right? Adam dies because he disobeyed God, so he took from the forbidden tree, and Jesus dies because he obeyed God, and so was killed and cursed on the forbidden tree and took upon himself the curse of the first Adam so that he might become the second Adam, but now we're getting a little too close to Romans 5, and this is not a Romans 5 sermon, is it? (laughs) Of course, uh, um, creation, the creation week ends on that wonderful Sabbath day where it says God rested from his work in the creation week. Now, that doesn't mean God got tired and needed to lay down for a bit. I know you know that, but it does have meaning. And what it means is God completed his work. And so we can take a step back and say, it's done. I did what I intended to do and it's good. And of course, multiple times. And if there's one thing actually that all of the gospel writers want to make sure you know about the crucifixion and of all the what some might call disagreements between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I just call uh, different uh, emphases. They decide to include different details and emphasize different things. One thing they all emphasize and include and agree on and make sure you know is that Jesus was laid in a tomb on the Sabbath because they want you to realize this is the decreation. This is like the creation week all over again, but now it's been all undone. The light has gone out and now God rests again. The God, God the Son rests again in a tomb on Sabbath. So you go from garden to, oh yeah, one more is um, John. Only John mentions this, but John wants to really make sure you get it in case you miss all of these images that Luke gives you. That's just John's way of doing things. John even mentions where the tomb was. Do you remember? In a garden. <laughs> A garden tomb. Who puts a tomb in a garden? That's a weird place to put a tomb. But John wants to make sure you see the image. The Son of God now rests in a garden in a tomb on Sabbath. Have you heard a story like that before? He's trying to get you to see all the Eden images from garden to garden, from tree to tree, from first Adam to second Adam, from cursed, bringing a curse into the world to being cursed by us or under the law. Cursed is any man who's hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us that we might receive life. And in some weird sense, it's like the curtains close on act one of the Bible. The sun has gone out and now act one is over. Of course, that's not the end of the story, but 
to continue going forward with chapter 24, verse 1, you know, the first day of the week, and even get that, the first day of the week. It's like Genesis 1, 1 all over again. But to continue with the hope of the resurrection, you actually have to go backwards. And I know I do this all the time, but again, if you want to see the power of the resurrection, you have to go back to the story of Israel. When God has a strange way of doing these things, when people are at their lowest moment, uh, empty of hope, He gives them their biggest blessing and promise. It's very strange. Like Adam and Eve, who had just alienated themselves from God and brought sin into the world, he he tells them of the curse that they have brought into the world, and then he ends with this wonderful hope of one day the seed of you, Eve, will crush the head of that serpent, even though he will strike his heel. Who receives such a cosmic blessing when you, you are responsible for bringing sin into the world? Or how about Abraham? When he's old, and Genesis, or Hebrew says that he was as good as dead, his wife is barren, he doesn't have a square inch of land to his name, but it's then when God promises him children more than the stars of the heavens, and it's then when God makes him walk all around the promised land and says, one day I'm going to give you and your descendants all of this, every inch of this place, even though you don't have an inch now. So when Abraham is at his lowest Point, God gives them this promise of future restoration and blessing. And of course, the one I wanted to come to was Israel in exile, suffering in Babylon, no hope, not a square inch of land in the promised land, no temple, no leader. And this is when God gives them these two strange blessings, two strange promises. Uh, the, The promise of restoration of creation and the promise of resurrection of the dead fascinating promises, very specific to all throughout Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah, these promises that even though you're right here suffering under exile in Babylon, one day, Isaiah says, God will create the new heavens and the new earth. All things will be restored. Heaven and earth will become one again. The wolf shall lie with the lamb as it was in Eden. Violence will be gone away. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, meaning they'll farm instead of making war with one another as it was in Eden. Do you know you'll have jobs in heaven? (laughs) You'll be farmers yet again. Maybe I won't have a job, but you guys will. (laughs) But in Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, Israel. Their bodies shall arise. You who dwell in the dust Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to its dead. Your dead will rise. Your bodies will rise from the dust. Not your spirit will go to live on in this disembodied, floating on the clouds, singing and playing harps all day. That's not the hope was, Israel, I know it looks bad now, but one day your dead will rise from the earth. Not even talking about Jesus saying, y'all. One day y'all will rise from the dead. Or Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Or that long vision Ezekiel gives of, he has this vision of this valley of dead people, so dead that it's just a bunch of bones now that have, all their flesh is decayed. And, and God goes, can these people live? And Ezekiel, he goes, Lord, you know, which is a way to say, I have no clue. What do you, can these people live? They're bones. And then God says, speak the word of life to them. And the spirit comes upon them and they're, they're not just, their souls are not just transported to heaven, but they're given new bodies with 10 fingers and 10 toes and skin and eyes and hair that doesn't fall out. The, the promise to Israel in exile was that one day you will rise bodily from the dead. And in tandem with that, this blessing and promise that goes hand in hand 
is not just your resurrection from the dead, but the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Restoring Eden back again, where heaven meets earth, that, that heaven and earth will become one. The wolf shall lie with the lamb. Not God will whisk you away to a disembodied bliss to play harps on the clouds forever, but that you will raise from the dead and reign on earth with Christ forever. And I like to say with 10 fingers and 10 toes, with hair that doesn't fall out and eyes that go, don't go dim. A str- <laughs> it's a strange thing to teach people because this has been the, the hope for 2,500 years, ever since these promises were given to Israel, their driving hope was that one day God would raise us bodily from the dead and renew creation. So that's how they were able to endure suffering in Babylon and genocide by the Greeks and being crucified by the thousands by the Romans because they held out this hope that one day our bodies will rise from the earth. Not that we'll go to live on in some disembodied state, but one day we will stand here in the promised land on our actual own feet and God will raise us from the dead. That's why if you go to Jerusalem, there's 10,000 tombs just outside the city because they want to be first in line at the resurrection of the dead. Those tombs were there 300 years before Jesus. Now, Even with the church, this hope continued. This is what had Christians going to their own death, being fed to lions, being drawn and quartered, being flogged and crucified on fire by Nero because they believed that God would raise their body from the dead. Even if they were burned alive, if they were shredded to pieces by lions, they believed God would make all things new and he would raise them from the dead and they would see it. They held to the promises of First Corinthians, so many. First Corinthians 15, First Thessalonians, John chapter 5, uh, Revelation 21. All these passages that speak of our bodily resurrection and the renewal of creation. You're probably asking what happened to these ideas because uh, it's a strange thing to teach because you can meet people, and I do it constantly, maybe even some of you, you've been Christians for 60 years, you've never heard of this concept of raising bodily from the dead, and you've kind of convinced yourself to put your hope in this weird disembodied state where, yeah, heaven so sounds fun, but really in the back of your mind, it's like, does it sound fun though? Because we're kind of just floating on clouds, and maybe that was your perception of heaven, and I find this to be such a weird thing to teach that, it, but what happened was it, it dissolved really during the Enlightenment, The enlightenment made uh, body bad, soul good. It made earth bad and heaven good. And if you look at enlightenment paintings, they suddenly change from the kingdom of God on earth and Christ coming to earth. They suddenly change to us being whisked away and going away from the body. Body bad, soul good, earth bad, heaven good. We want to get away. And instead, what you see in the Bible in Revelation, the end is the new heavens coming down and God announces to his people, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not that I'll whisk you away to myself, but I will come and live with you. It's Eden all over again. After the enlightenment, our hope became dying and living as a soul forever and dying and leaving earth. Instead of when Christ returns, we will raise from the dead. And when Christ returns, he will restore the new heavens and new earth or the new creation, if you want to say that. That's why this story in Luke, the resurrection, is so beautiful. Is he's showing that what has actually happened on this first day of the week He's trying to show you that what has suddenly happened is this has been brought into the present. And some women come to him as a second Adam in a garden, just like Eden, to show you that one day has been now brought into the present in part. That's why it's so weird to live as a Christian, because you've been raised from the dead, kind of, but not fully. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But you're not a new creation yet fully, are you? Of course not. 
That's why your back hurt. That's why your hair falls out. You're not a new creation yet, bodily. But we've already been saved by the Lord. We have been made a new creation in our soul, but one day we will receive that new resurrection body. And, and, and I think Luke draws this out in such a fascinating way in, in 2430. Just, we didn't read that, but just a little bit forward in chapter 24, verse 30. See if you catch this, right? He says, when he was at the table with them, he took, this is Jesus, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, the disciples. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Have you heard of that story before? Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. They ate it and their eyes were opened and they recognized their nakedness and their shame. But now to reverse that, he shows that Jesus took the bread. He gave it to them. They didn't know who this man was upon his resurrection. And they took it and eat and their eyes were open. This is the new creation. If you recognize who Jesus is, this is the new creation for you. You have been made a new creation like 2 Corinthians 5 says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, present tense. The old has passed away. The new has come. Not so much in the sense of, well, I just feel like a new man after I've met Christ. And I'm glad for you in a sense that is true, but you are really made a new creation, even if you don't see it or recognize it. Such a beautiful and strong way to view the church too. We're not just a group of individuals who happen to be saved and who happen to have the same morals and standards as each other in a culture, which are great things. We are a new creation people. We are a people, quite literally, living as if the new creation has already come. This is why you feel out of place in the world. Not just because we have different morals than people in the world, and God knows we do, but because we are literally living in a new creation that is yet to come, that we believe one day will come. So we're acting like it has already come. This is why you see the church in Acts, feeding the poor, healing the sick, the lame can walk, the hungry are fed, women and Gentiles are not looked down on as second-class citizens, Because in the new creation, there will be no hungry, there will be no sick, there will be no discrimination. And we believe as a church that day has already come with Christ's resurrection in us. And we're waiting for the whole renewal of creation when that becomes an earthly reality for all. That future day has come in us. Now, not fully, right? If it had come fully, uh, I wouldn't have woken up this morning after sleeping weird and had trouble getting out of bed. Right? I know some of you probably feel that way too. If it had come fully, there's no more pinched nerves in our backs and, and people and, and, you know, in hospital visits if that day had come fully. And so we have to recognize that that day has been inaugurated in us as a church, but we are still looking forward to that bodily resurrection. And I know this is strange. It can be new for, for so many people, but we hold out this hope that we will rise from the dead. And you can see Luke's I don't know if it's his frustration, but you can see Luke's attempts to try to fit these two together, Christ's bodily resurrection and the renewal of creation. If I had to summarize this, I'd say what Luke is trying to portray and really what all the gospel writers are trying to portray, if you could summarize it, it would be what happened to Jesus will happen to us. What we believe happened to Jesus upon his resurrection will happen to us. Because he paid for our sins, he did not just die and come back, but it's more so he he died and came out the other side. And we believe that if we are in Christ, then what happened to him will happen to us. And it's really funny, and we'll we'll look at that later, and that that eating meal story I just referenced. It it says that uh, they were were troubled, and they were having trouble understanding. and, (laughs) And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and they still disbelieved. He says, give me something to eat. It doesn't say he was hungry, so he asked for something to eat. He says they disbelieved, so he says, give me something to eat. 
Okay, so they, they give him some fish and he eats it and he took it and ate it before them. Look, watch me eat this food and swallow it so you can know what he says. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. He's not a ghost walking around. He's trying to show you I am a flesh and bone man with skin and hair and toes. And so I'll eat this fish to prove it to you. Quite a strange story. But he really wants us to make sure we never slide into this idea of whisked off into a disembodied bliss in heaven where we float on the clouds. He wants to show you, no, what happened to me will happen to you. I find it to be so much more enjoyable of a picture of heaven for most people, embodied new creation with trees and animals where the wolf really does lie with a lamb. The wolf lying with the lamb wasn't a metaphor for us leaving earth. The wolf lies with the lamb was a metaphor for Eden being restored on the earth. So um, what, what I do encounter is when people know these things, they say, well, so what? They, they, it's odd when people hold to these doctrines as Christians have historically done for 2000 years and the Jews before them of bodily resurrection and new creation. They don't really see why it matters. I've run into that all the time of preachers and ministers and friends who were like, well, I believe in the bodily resurrection, but I don't see why that really has any matter for me right now. And I have two reasons why that matters, and it's hurting bodies and hurting hearts. Every time you wake up with pinched nerves, every time you wake up and your knees hurt for no reason, anytime you, but on a more serious note, every time you deal with mental problems or hospital visits or, or grief, Your hope is that you will receive a new body that does not have hurting knees and hair that falls out and eyes that go blind and ears that go deaf. Your hope is that you will have ears that work perfectly one day. That is our hope. Hurting bodies is what uh, encourages this hope in us that what happened to Christ on Easter will happen to us. But hurting hearts as well that as we suffer under the weight of a broken world and a, a corrupted creation, our hope is that Christ will make all these things new. I mean, just think about the past three years, we've seen a global pandemic and a war break out in Europe. And our hope is not that this earth will be done away with and thrown in the trash can and God will whisk us away. Our hope is that one day we will beat our swords into plowshares and we will see the wolf lie with the lamb and there will be no violence on earth. And one day Christ will renew this world with us on it bodily. He is remaking it better than Eden. So I'll leave you with this in Luke 24, 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. Now that's the ESV. I like the NIV, but they did not believe the women because the words seemed like nonsense. That's, that's dangerous. Those are hunting words. They see the empty tomb. They see angels tell them, no, he is not here. He has risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They go tell the apostles, go, no, nonsense. That their own, their own teacher, their own Messiah had risen from the dead. He says, that's a tale. It's like you're telling idle tales and stories. But what's scary is that I see people all the time living as if this is an idle tale, especially in the Bible Belt. A lot of people proclaim to be Christians, but live as if this, this is no more than an idle tale. It's haunting to me that so many people can claim to know Christ, but if believing in the resurrection of the Son of God has not transformed your life, you may call yourself a Christian, but you're living as if this is no, nothing more than an idle tale. Because idle tales don't change human hearts. Idle tales don't last 2,000 years. Sorry. Give me a second. Idle, ta- idle tales don't last 2,000 years across cultures and continents. Idle tales... Don't encourage people to go to their own death being fed to lions and crucified on fire. 
Idle, idle tales just get people to come into church and have some weird relationship with Jesus where he's a long way off. You don't really care about him. That's what idle tales do. Idle tales change human hearts. So if you are here and you've put your faith in Christ, you can have hope that you have not believed in an idle tale. Because we're standing here in Hearn, Texas, believing in this Jewish man who we believe was God and rose from the dead. You have not believed in an idle tale. Idle tales get snuffed out when governments try to put them away. This is no mere idle tale, but this is a sword that cuts both, uh, the sword that cuts both ways. This is no idle tale, so be careful. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, he says. Be careful. This is not an idle tale. This is not a kid's story. The resurrection, uh, Paul says in Acts 17, he says that because Christ from, rose from the dead, he confirmed to us, we know he will return to judge the world. Be careful. This is not an idle tale. This is not something you want to play with. So let's pray. God, uh, thank you for this text. Thank you for the power of your resurrection, uh, your son's resurrection from the dead, God. I pray that we would put our hope in this future promise of bodily resurrection as you teach uh, in your word and all throughout, God. I pray that we would see the future as this renewal of all things. And I pray, most importantly, that we would live in light of that now, that we would live as if that's true now, God. I pray that we would go and spread Eden throughout our world. We would restore things in our lives now. And I pray most of all, Lord, that our hearts would be convicted that this is no mere idle tale that has, that has made it this far to Hearn, Texas, God. I, I pray that we would see this as a true story and not some, some, uh, some insane, insane story, God. Just until we pray. Amen.